beautiful and jarring. As I've uh, been preparing this week for today's sermon on Titus chapter 2, these words have, have formed in my thinking. Beautiful and jarring. Is it dawned on me that uh, while the book of Titus is only a short letter of just three chapters, uh, the scope of things addressed uh, means that in almost every sentence we are given something um, that is both beautiful in, the, in that it presents clearly God's glorious design for the life of his people as individuals and in the church, uh, but at the same time it is incredibly jarring as the words clash directly against the world's perception of what are acceptable attitudes and behaviours. Now, if you've not done so already, please turn with me to, to the book of Titus and I'll show you what I mean. You see, in the opening chapter, uh, we are told that there is such a thing as absolute truth. As the Apostle Paul declares that God has chosen him to proclaim the divine message of salvation. This clashes directly against the postmodern biases of our day that suggest truth is merely relative. Uh, what's true for one person or, or one generation or one culture has no bearing on another. But that worldly concept of truth just does not align with the scriptures at all. Now, the fact that there is truth also points to the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, For the message of salvation is not that all roads lead to God, uh, but there is only one road, uh, the path of repentance, of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, to a world that celebrates relativism, that's just simply arrogance. Moreover, the message of salvation being by grace alone hits at the heart of humanism. Uh, People want to believe that they have the power within themselves to do anything they put their minds to, even making themselves right before God. But the Bible plainly says over and over, and if you missed it, over again, um, that every person is born in sin and then participates in sin. We sin because we're sinners. Humans are born with a sinful nature and though we exhibit freedom within our sinful nature, we are bound by it and have no capacity to choose God. Unless, of course, God graciously chooses us first and frees our wills to respond to him. The wonder of God's merciful election of his people before the beginning of time is a jarring concept For a world that thinks of man as completely autonomous, uh, that he or she is the king or queen of their own castle. But the Bible makes clear the beauty of God's sovereign election, for without it, no one would be saved. Well, what else then? Paul continues, he goes on and uh, to give Titus the task of appointing elders in every church on the island of Crete. Uh, But note what he says about the elders' qualification. He says they must be men of integrity, above reproach in every area of their life. These character qualities mean there is no place for dictators. Uh, There's no place for those in it for themselves. But this runs hard into the world's view of leadership. Did not Jesus say in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 27... You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That there have been too many who have stepped into the role of church leadership with a worldly view is is seen clearly in the constant headlines about the Royal Commission into child abuse. The call to lead in Christ's church is a call to servanthood and humility for the glory of Christ. Now, the fact that eldership is a divinely established office in which uh, must serve those men who are able to govern and teach means that while Scripture affirms the priesthood of all believers, holding that Christ is the only mediator between God and man, nevertheless, Christ has called and gifted certain men to act as under-shepherds of his flock. There is a divinely ordained structure in the church for both the blessing of the people and the carrying out of the mission of the church. Yes, uh, the Holy Spirit gifts each person differently, but there are certain people he has gifted into leadership. And this means that the church is not a democracy. Christ is the head, but then in the local church, the elders are to lead in the Lord according to his word. And so the local church is is not a dictatorship where the elders just do whatever they like, whatever pleases their own selfish desires, but neither is a democracy where the congregation gets to have a say about every matter. The elders are to make every effort to bring people along with them to serve the people. But the congregation is to recognise the responsibility that has been placed upon the elders to govern and teach. Now that is a definite clash of ideals between what the scripture teaches and what the world puts forward. Paul continues, we see more jarring uh, between the beauty of God's design and the world's view uh, when Paul outlines the necessity of of dealing with these false teachers and, and those who've been carried away by the false teaching. You see, the Bible says it's an act of love to protect the flock from wolves. And it's a further act of love to go out and rescue the sheep that have been taken captive. But from a worldly perspective, to say that someone is wrong is judgmental. But let's suppose uh, you were walking uh, past the house in which a friend of yours lived and and you saw someone skulking around the front uh, with a cigarette lighter starting small fires which soon begin to envelop the house with your friend inside. Are you just going to stand back and not do anything because it would be judgmental? Would you just keep walking because it would be inappropriate to make any judgment on the actions of the arsonist? Who am I to say what he's doing is wrong? Would you just keep walking because you wouldn't want to impose your own ideas on your friend as to whether it would be a good idea or not to get out of the burning house? Of course not. But that's what the world wants us to do when false teaching arises in the church. The world wants us to let it burn. And then we come to chapter 2. To begin with, we learn of God's beautiful design for his redeemed people. He has saved us into his household and now enables us to live as his children. He blesses us by explaining what it looks like to to live as his godly children. And he blesses us because he enables us by his grace to grow in godliness. He always gives us his grace to follow his commands. 
Now, in a general sense, this too flies in the face of the world's view of the way to live. We can see this as churches continue to accommodate the standards of godliness to enable people to come into the membership, to, to, to come in without any sense of repentance whatsoever. But more specifically, as we've been looking at the standards of godliness for different members of the church, we recognise God's great provision, but we see how much this collides with our culture. We've seen that older men are to be so sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Yet these are certainly not lifted up as desired traits in the world. And yet we get more controversial as, as we learn what God says for the older women in the church, that they are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are, they are to teach what is good and so train the younger women. Well, here too, the Bible provides an incredible, beautiful picture. A picture, however, that does not sit well with our culture. With this overview, I I hope you can see why I found the words beautiful and jarring to be appropriate. See, the more that we read the scripture, the more we encounter choices to submit to what God says or to choose our own way. The more we elevate ourselves over the text, the more we find that the words of scripture jar against our own consciences and mindsets. But when we submit ourselves under God's word, we enter into the joy of living the way that he has designed life to be. Now, while all that we have seen already provides that jarringly beautiful, perhaps beautifully jarring contrast between God's plan and the world's, uh, today we venture into what is certainly dangerous territory. Given the moral and sexual revolution of the past several generations, today we begin to speak about the standards of godliness for younger women. And I say begin uh, because while we're only dealing with two verses here, uh, there is much that needs to be said. It's not that there is anything unclear about what is written in these verses, but it's because of the clarity of the words that we must take our time. As we approach this text, I want us to be conscious of whether we are listening more to the words of God through Scripture or whether we are listening to the voice of the culture at large. See, sometimes we are unaware of exactly how we have come to our opinions about certain matters. But then when we read the Scriptures, we are to be willing to submit all of our views to be critiqued to the divine revelation, whatever the topic it is that we're thinking about. There is such a thing as absolute truth, and we are blessed that God has revealed it to us. So what are the standards of godliness for younger women? How does God call his daughters to live? Well, let's read. And we're going to begin from verse 3 because it continues from there. Titus chapter 2 from verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And then verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, 
kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So there are seven standards of godliness listed here. And this morning we're going to tackle the first four. And the last three, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, we'll address in full next week. But what I want you to notice to begin with is how these standards are meant to be taught. Who is it that is meant to be training the younger women in godliness, in a life that is pleasing to God? Well, it's the older women. In fact, in verse 4, the word women is not in the original language. It simply reads that the older women are to teach what is good and so train the young to love their husbands and children. The majority of English Bibles specify that it's the young women, but that's just a given from the text. Now, this doesn't preclude the the preacher from dealing with these texts in a sermon. Uh, It simply means that the main responsibility of getting alongside the younger women of the church and encouraging them to grow in godliness is to be undertaken by the older women. And that makes good sense, doesn't it? I mean, not only does that protect the church members from the temptations of of sexual immorality, but who better to guide and assist the younger women than those who have walked the same journey before? Of course, That certainly means that what is said to the younger women is applicable also to the older women um, because how are they to teach godliness if they are not living with godliness themselves? Now, when we looked at the passage on older women, we learned that this was speaking of women approximately 60 years old. And so when Paul speaks about younger women, He's not simply discussing what we would label today as as teenagers or young adults. No, he's speaking of all those of marriageable age up to about 60 years old. So those ready for marriage, those in the process of childbearing and those in the process of child rearing. And the reason then is clear why the older women are called to train the younger women. It's because they have made it through the whole process themselves. Uh, They know what it is to feel the many stages of marriage and parenting. They've they've seen their loved ones uh, leave their home and go and create their own homes. Uh, They are beginning to see older ones they love uh, die around them. and, And all these things bring opportunity for wisdom and perspective that is just so invaluable for the younger women as they go through those things themselves. The older women have learned priceless lessons which the younger would be well advised to take advantage of. Now, as with all of the standards of godliness outlined in Titus chapter 2, while each is directed specifically to a particular group in the church, there is a great deal that we all can take away from this chapter. For older men, What is listed in verses 3 to 5 are the things you should be praying for that God would enable in the women in the church. And you can particularly be encouraging your own wives as they seek to encourage the younger women. For younger men, uh, these are the qualities you should be looking for in a prospective wife. And if you are already married, uh, these are the things you should be praying uh, that God would enable in your spouse. 
Now we'll address this next week, but just note immediately, immediately now the importance of praying for your wife rather than putting these things on your wife, especially the notion of submissiveness. It's not the husband's job to tell his wife to be submissive. It is something that she enters into voluntarily. The only ones to be encouraging her in that matter, aside from the Holy Spirit in his word, are the older godly women. And of course, this passage is directly relevant to the older women uh, because this is your responsibility before God to encourage the younger women. Now, it's not set aside here as an official teaching position in the church. It's, it's just a, a matter that happens informally in the day-to-day life of the church. And to the younger women, obviously, this passage is directed to you. And as we go through these aspects now, I want to reassure you of the glorious calling and privilege it is to be a daughter of God. While the world may hear these verses as a form of archaic oppression, remember that God is good. And as your creator and redeemer, he knows what will bring you joy and what will bring glory to himself as he works through your lives. So, the first two standards of godliness for younger women is that they are to love their husbands and children. Here we note that Paul is simply addressing the general state of play. In general, most women will get married, and if they do, they are to love their husbands, and if they have children, they are to love them as well. Remember that the man who wrote uh, to Titus is the same man who wrote 1 Corinthians, where he stated in chapter 7, verse 7, I wish that all were as I am, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so in that context, he was speaking about the gift of singleness, a gift of God that comes with the great blessing of being free of family anxiety to please the Lord in service to him. But in God's economy... Both marriage and singleness can be filled with great blessing. So, young women are firstly to love their husbands if they have them, and secondly, if they have children, they are to love them as well. Now, it's important to note the order of these qualities. The grammatical structure of the sentence makes that clear. The the original language literally reads, train the younger husband-loving to be child loving. Little princes and princesses need to know that while the queen loves them greatly, the king still holds her greatest affection. Just as a marriage itself is is blessed if the wife's love for her husband comes second to her love for God, so the family unit will be blessed if the mother's love for her children comes second to her love for her husband. Now, this is not to lower uh, the mother's love for her child because the same word translated as love is, is used for both the woman's connection to her husband and her connection to her children. Now, in our house, uh, there are three men fighting for the affection of one woman. Of course, those other men are only age three and one. 
but at times I'm very thankful that I can stay up past 7.30. No one's denying that the introduction of children into the family is, is going to change the amount of time parents get to spend with one another. And rightly so. I mean, parenting is a loving sacrifice. And yet how easily can the marriage be set aside? How many marriages struggle once the children have grown up and begin to leave the home because the husband and wife have discovered they invested so much time into the, to their relationships with their children and so little time into each other. So it is vital that every family unit be diligent to ensure that due focus be given to the relationship between the mother and the father. Children will feel most loved when they know that the foundation of their parents' marriage is rock solid. Now this instruction for younger women to to love their husbands would be especially important for the culture of Paul's day in which most marriages were arranged and where romantic love was something that grew over time. Uh, To modern and supposedly more enlightened ears, that may sound like an attempt to manufacture feelings. Uh, Our society lords romantic feelings as the most important building block for a healthy relationship. Of course, in many instances, the term romance is a very thin veil for debauched behaviour. But regardless, uh, we might simply ask, well, how are those romantic feelings working out for you? See, as the, the moral and sexual revolution began in the second half of the last century, we have seen its dreadful effects on the family. Since the introduction of the Australian Family Law Act in 1975, which officially brought in no-fault divorce, the number of marriages per year is approximately 110,000. But in comparison to that, the number of divorces is averaging close to 50,000. For instance, in 2016, there were 118,401 marriages commenced in Australia, while during the same year, there were 46,604 marriages concluded. So that's a clear result of the elevation of feelings. But biblical love is not simply a feeling. It is an active pursuit. Even when there may be no feelings present, regardless of the husband's actions, a wife is to act with affection towards him. And here we also note that all Christians are to act with love toward others, regardless of whether they are friend or foe. Of course, we have the exemplar in God's love. Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 5, it's the the husbands who are called to love their wives and the wives are called to submit to their husbands. But here in Titus... Uh, the picture is filled out further in that wives are also called to love their husbands. A gravestone uh, uncovered from first century Bithynia, which is in the northern area of of modern-day Turkey, had this inscription of it. It said of of one wife that she was the modest and husband-honouring wife of the silversmith. Had some more words there, but I can't pronounce their names. But according to the writer who noted this, it was a typical characterization of a wife. 
it was considered virtuous for a wife to have lived a life that exhibited love and honour to her husband. Now, although we live in a day when a description like this would be considered degrading, nonetheless, Paul's instruction is the same today as it was in the first century. A younger woman who loves her husband is certainly going to stand out as a light into the darkness of our world. But more than loving her husband, if she has children, she is to love them too. And of course, the Bible also makes clear that it is to be the intention of all couples to have children. The purpose of marriage in Genesis 1, of being fruitful and multiplying, that hasn't changed. And from the loving relationship of husband and wife, that love and that sacrifice is to flow into the new lives welcomed into the home. And so that's to be the intention of all marriages, even if, for certain reasons, it is not able to come into effect. So younger women are to love their children. And, and whether these children are biological or adopted makes no difference. In fact, we should not think of adoption as something of a lesser value because adoption is a vivid picture of what has happened to believers as God has adopted us into his family. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says, God has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We find here as well that the instruction for a mother to love her children is not based on her feelings, but on her active love for them, no matter how the little darlings are behaving. The focus is not on the actions of the children, but on the actions of the mother. The word translated as as love here is is philos, uh, the love of brotherly affection or tenderness. Uh, We know that the city of Philadelphia in the US is the, the city of brotherly love. And so the young woman's love for her husband and for her children is to be tender and affectionate. And what a witness mothers can be for the gospel as they act with patience and grace, understanding, care to their children, even in times when discipline needs to be enacted. In Hebrews 13 verse 6, we're told that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And as a mother, and of course the father as well, love for children includes discipline. But discipline must also be carried out in love. I mean, think on the wider scale of church discipline, in that it must never be for retribution, but always, always it is about reconciliation. And so here too, within the family, discipline is never a means for the parent to vent their annoyance and frustration but must always be out of love for the child to grow them in godliness before the Lord. Now, we might also take opportunity here to raise the contentious issue of abortion. For a mother's love for her child is to begin the moment of conception. The Bible leaves no room for the practice of abortion whatsoever. The Bible honours life. And so should Christians. In Leviticus 18.21, we read, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
How many children have been sacrificed to the false God of our age, the false God of women's rights over the last few generations? Statistics in Australia must be estimated because South Australia and WA are the the only states that keep detailed records. Uh, But in an article by the ABC last year, the national estimate is 65,000 per year. Now, just to give you a comparison... The National Archives of Australia states that there were 35,369 Australian servicemen and women killed throughout the six years of World War II. So every year, our nation is almost doubling that figure with the murders of unborn children. And so much for the liberation promised by the moral revolutionaries. Now, by the mercy of God, these unborn souls are granted salvation and enter his presence in heaven. Jesus' blessing of the little children in Mark 10 lends credence to that view. And for the woman who has aborted her baby, if there are any here today, I want you to know that there is the offer of forgiveness found at the foot of the cross. Through repentance of sin and trust in Christ Jesus, that woman too will enter the kingdom and have the hope of seeing her child again one day. Now, some may not go to the extreme of abortion, but um, while we're stepping on landmines here today, um, for women seeking to be godly, this absolutely uh, includes her husbands as well. It is imperative that careful thought is given in the realm of contraception. Now hear me clearly, I am not speaking against against the use of contraception in marriage, but it befits all Christian couples to investigate whether the contraceptive methods they use are abortive fashions. You see, some methods stop conception, but other methods, those that are abortive fashions, stop a fertilised egg from being implanted and therefore cause an abortion. Because it is not the moment an egg is implanted that a baby is formed, but the moment that egg is fertilised. That is when life begins. And so love for children starts the moment of conception. Okay, the third standard of godliness for younger women is that they are to be self-controlled. Now this is the the same quality that is called for in elders in the first chapter of Titus. And in chapter 2, the same quality is laid out for older men in verse 2. For older women, as we've we've seen already today, this trait is also to be exhibited uh, by the younger men in verse 6. And then it's also stressed in a general sense for all believers when Paul says in verse 12, uh, where we read from verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Now, as I've mentioned previously, the the type of self-control being advocated for here is different to what Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5 as part of the fruit of the Spirit. Of course, that list in Galatians is not an exhaustive list. So we mustn't think that what's mentioned here in Titus 2 is is anything less than the Spirit's gift as well. But there is a difference 
In Galatians, the self-control is about mastery. But here in Titus 2, the self-control is about moderation. In Galatians, Paul was impressing the need for godly restraint. But here in Titus, Paul is stressing the need for godly regulation. It's about having a sensible and thoughtful outlook on life. A life that's focused on what God says is important. It's a a life that has a God-defined balance. Now, having just spoken about a, a younger woman's godly love for her husband and for her children, it's not surprising that Paul now addresses the need for her to see the world with God's perspective. It's come up already this morning and it will again come up today, but godly women must not be taken in by what the world says is of value. They must learn to trust that God is good and that he knows what will be most glorifying to himself and what will be most edifying to his daughters. To help you in that, here is just a small, a small sample from the Psalms that emphasise the goodness of God. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Psalm 100, verse 5, which we had read to us this morning. For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 106, verse 1. Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 119, verse 68. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And if we go back to Psalm 34, verse 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. One of the barriers to trusting in someone is not simply whether their word is faithful, but whether their word is also good. We can have great assurance that the word of the Lord is both trustworthy and good. Alright, the fourth standard of godliness for younger women is they are to be pure. And this is what we'll finish on with today. This word refers to moral purity. It could be rendered chaste, modest, innocent, blameless. And it certainly speaks to the need for sexual purity and and marital faithfulness. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 2, Timothy is uh, exhorted to treat the younger women in the church as sisters in all purity. And of course we should recognise that command was not limited to Timothy. It's, it's given to all men in the church in how they are to treat women as belonging to the same spiritual family. If a, a woman is older, she is to be treated like a mother. If a woman is younger, she is to be treated like a sister. And so there's not to be any sexual immorality within the body of Christ. Until such time a woman becomes a man's wife, she is to be treated as if she were his sister. But it's not just the men who are to act with sexual purity. In the context of Titus 2 verse 5, every godly younger woman will be known for her sexual purity. 
Yet this command for purity is not limited to sexual fidelity. It is far more inclusive than that. It means moral purity in all areas of her life. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Timothy is told by Paul, verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And the context here is in installing new elders. This must not be done rashly. He was to do all he could to avoid being accused of discrimination or impartiality. And then the the value of purity is seen in the following verse, verse 23, where Paul tells Timothy, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, why does he say this? It kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Well, because the water was full of impurities and was likely to make him sick if he drank it by himself. And so it was practical advice, but it also helped very clearly to illustrate the point he was making about Timothy keeping himself pure when installing elders. He was not to let anything uh, disdain his actions. But what relevance does this have for younger women? Plenty. It is a call for purity throughout her whole life. Not only marital fidelity, but moral purity across the board. Any impurity will affect a young woman's whole persona, like impurities in a glass of water. And if we look back to the words given to older women in Titus 2 verse 3, that lines up with, with having reverent behaviour. It can be expanded to, to purity in what she brings into her mouth with the command not to be slaves to much wine. And most especially it relates to purity of speech, what comes out of her mouth, where older women are told not to be slanderous. Unfortunately, there is a lot of redefining that goes on in our world today. To gossip and slander means to share information or misinformation about a person or a situation. We all know what that is, but how often do we try and convince ourselves, oh, we're not gossiping, and we're just simply talking about something with others. Oh, we're not gossiping, no, 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 we're simply working through the matter ourselves. Oh, we're not gossiping, no, we're simply trying to be of help. Purity does not allow for these compromises. More could be said on the nature of purity, but in summary, listen to these words from the Apostle John. In 1 John 3, he says this in verses 2 to 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that is Christ, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's a call to the whole church. But the younger women are called to exemplify this purity in the whole of their lives. So older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and to be pure. These scriptural standards of godliness are extraordinarily jarring to the culture that we live in. And as we continue next week, we'll read words that will seem even more so. 
But by God's grace, we have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. And through this, we recognize the true beauty of what is laid out before us. Here is the way to live pleasing to God. Here is the way to bring glory to him. Here is the way to witness to the world of God's goodness and his grace. May the Lord enable us by his grace to trust his words and know that they are good and beautiful. May the Lord especially enable his daughters among us to display his goodness in their lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the teaching that is found in this short book of the Bible. We recognise its beauty as you lay out for us not only the standards of godliness for your people but wider aspects of church life. We thank you that you have provided us with such a revelation that we would know how you call us to live and that there is joy and wonder in following what you have laid out for us. Father, we pray for your grace uh, to hear these words and to apply these words into our own lives, uh, particularly for uh, the older women and younger women who've been addressed most particularly in this passage today. We pray for your grace because these words, as we've seen, Uh, hit up against the culture of our day and indeed the culture uh, throughout history. These words will have always been uh, jarring to life outside of the kingdom. And so we pray for our church as we continue through these standards of godliness, of, of what it means to live as your people. We pray for your grace and your strength to see things from your perspective and to work these things in our life by the power of your spirit working in us. As we do so, may we bring glory to you and be a wonderful witness to this world of the good news of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.